It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is really all about challenging the status quo thinking outside the box, and quite honestly, the benefits of disruption in tech and media. I'm I'm psyched about our guest today, Kate Ward, who is the CEO and founder of The Dip, which is basically a personalized subscription website, perfect for like some of us biggest TV fans, right, Kate? Oh, yeah, And formerly the the founding editor-in-chief of Bustle Digital Group. Kate, I'm so happy to talk to you again. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So let's start here just a little bit. I mean, your career has been a really exciting one to watch. And since you and I first talked, I have had the opportunity to sort of follow that a little bit. Um, You know, specifically with your successful foray through the media and your, you know, sort of your impactful founding role at Bustle and now, you know, the new endeavor, The Dip. Can you give our listeners some background sort of on the journey and and more about sort of what drives you? Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, I started my career in in journalism through and through. I was a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism. I had sort of planned to become a celebrity profiler at Vanity Fair. That was my big goal. Um, Obviously, the industry's changed quite a bit since I graduated in 2007. So I, I, you know, parlayed my J school uh, career into a job at Entertainment Weekly. And then when I saw that digital media was starting to become, you know, the next big thing basically and print media was sort of some sort of starting to kind of go somewhere else. <laughs> I decided that, you know, if I really wanted to change with the industry, I had to be a change agent. And so I had to jump to uh, digital myself. So I did that there starting at EW and Time Inc. Um, and then I had a brief sojourn at a um, publication called Hollywood.com trying to relaunch something that was existing since 1990. And I really enjoyed sort of trying to take something and, 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 you know, put my little, you know, hands on it to get to get it to become something else. And that led me to Bustle, which, uh, you know, our CEO at the time came to me. He knew he wanted to start a site for women. He had done Bleacher Report prior. He didn't know what that meant. Obviously, he was a woman himself. So he decided to basically put all the cards in my hand and, and, and put together what the edit strategy would be and how we would, um, you know, uh, grow the site, uh, what kind of content we would produce, what kind of writers we would work with, etc. So I took that to you know, zero to 80 million monthly unique readers by the time I left. And by the time I left, we were doing a lot of M&A, absorbing a lot of distressed assets and turning them around. And that was really fun, but I really missed building things. And so I decided to to leave along with my co-founder, who was also at Bustle with me, and start work on the dip, which, you know, we started to see that there was this market for subscription media in in 2020 and beyond. Um, People were realizing that they had to pay in order to get really high quality content. And while that existed primarily before with business content and things that you can kind of put your corporate card down for, uh, publications like The Athletic started to showcase like, hey, people will do this for the things they're passionate about as well. So we wanted to kind of be the answer to that in entertainment. But even as we continue to grow, we see other opportunities to really sort of try to to, to change things up in the way we look at media in general. Um, you know, we always, we, we're feeling like in, in, in the, as we continue to build our product that, you know, everybody has looked at media differently than they look at social media. 
And so can we create media that is actually social? So that's a big challenge that we're giving to ourselves as we continue to grow and add features. So right now our site is just sort of a flat experience. If you go on it, it's, you know, very, very new site. We launched just a few months ago, um, but we're we're adding features to it to, um, you know, start to kind of get that social side of media into things a little bit more. So I know that was a big, (laughs) that was a long treatise through my career, but that's what led me to where I am at this very day right now, brainstorming what those features will be for the future. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm as when I think the first time you and I initially spoke was I think the day or right around the time that you were actually launching the dip, mm. and I immediately jumped on. and And, and I, I will tell you, as a platform, I love it. Um, but you know, I want to just go back just a little bit, and, and we'll get to the dip. I want to talk about bustle just a little bit um, because I think you know one of the things that I I find fascinating about that story was sort of the whole idea. Um, that you sort of founded that that off of, which was, you know, young professionals and sort of the recent post-grads, right, in the working world could be passionate about both world affairs and celebrity gossip, right, um, on the same day, sort of during the same coffee break, right? While this, I, I know initially, you, you know, it was met with resistance from the industry and in it, but ended up being sort of an incredibly successful approach, Why did the brand choose to target sort of that millennial audience specifically? And and, and can we talk a little bit about how it did that so successfully? Because we'll get to your success, which is amazing, but I'd I'd love to understand a little bit about how how you did that and, and the way you went about it. Yeah. I mean, so the easy answer is that, you know, I was the reader, so I got a sense of what the reader wanted and it was easy for me to create a product for me versus creating it for somebody that I didn't really know. Um, it didn't always stay that way as I, you know, rebuilt some of the brands at, at bustle and built some new brands. But at the time it was sort of kind of thinking about like, what was it that I was looking for in a product that I wasn't getting elsewhere? You know, I had previously really not been somebody who would absorb a lot of women's media in particular. Um, it, never really satisfied my need to be able to kind of get everything in one place. So, and to get it fast. So I found myself as a reader, when something happened in the world, you know, I I had no choice, but to go to CNN to see what, what CNN was saying, because they're the only ones covering it. And then, you know, if it was Monday between, you know, nine to five, then maybe I could go on, you know, one of the sites that I followed like Jezebel or something and see what their perspective was. But but, but when it wasn't, I, I didn't get to hear from them. And that was something that to me, I found a little unsatisfying. So, you know, I tried to create a structure that made us as 24 seven as possible when we started. So we were able to sort of occupy this zone of like, we know something happened right now at 10 o'clock at night and we are on it providing that perspective that you really want that you're not getting from a CNN. Um, And at the time too, you know, a lot of the traditional women's media outlets were not really treating millennials with, um, you know, the kind of respect that they deserved. Um, A lot of women's media also focused primarily just on lifestyle because that's what sold the ads. So, you know, everything was about fashion. Everything was about, um, uh, you know, beauty and, and relationships. And while that's that, those are all things that we care deeply about. We also care deeply about what's happening in the world. Uh, particularly when 2016 happened, obviously then it became even more of a big focus for us, but it was important for us to be able to kind of understand that our reader was multifaceted and that meant that we had to be too. Yeah. Let's talk about the success there for a second. Cause again, this number always blows my mind. From zero to 80 plus million unique 
monthly visitors. I mean, that's just an incredible, incredible amount of success. And I guess for me, you know, for other brands um, who are looking to sort of reach the millennial audience, obviously with those types of numbers, you're an expert. So what tips would you give? What would what tips would you share with us in terms of reaching that millennial audience or buyer? So it's all about knowing where they are and what they're doing when they're on those platforms. So, you know, we know that a lot of media had problems in you know, the late 2010s when everything they were doing was geared towards Facebook. And then suddenly Facebook didn't really look kindly to publishers anymore and kind of turned off that hose. And then all these uh, publications that relied on Facebook were kind of screwed. And so the first and foremost thing is you have to be diversified. You can't just depend on one platform. So you have to ask yourself, if I'm trying to reach this specific reader, where is that person? And how am I going to give them something that they will want there? So, you know, the kind of stuff we put together for Facebook was very different than the kind of content we put together for Google, which was different than the content we put together for Instagram. So it was a lot of strategizing around what we wanted to see on these platforms and what we were used to seeing and how we could find those things. And that became really, truly the main focus is, um, you know, how do we know what our, our reader is searching? You know, like it's, it's pretty basic. Mm. Like what is a millennial woman searching? Um, you know, we would sit in a room and just sort of like, list out things that we were thinking about that week or that month or whatever, and then just, you know, surely, but slowly, but surely work our way through it and find that we were able to get the audience in. And then the audience would stay around and look around and really enjoy what else that was out there. I think that's such a key point, though. You met them at their space versus trying to convey or be something that you weren't. You were really focused on them and and their behaviors and what they were looking for and met that versus trying to approach it in any other way. I mean, that, that to me is such a critical point where I think a lot of companies today are starting to realize that the importance is meeting people where they are, but also being able to understand what is it that people are looking for. And don't try to serve what you want, serve up what they're looking uh, or expecting you to serve them. I think that that's probably the bigger lessons. So what have you learned about millennials in this process? <laughs> well, I am one myself, so I learn a lot about, a lot about myself every day. But um, you know, I, I think what what I've what I've learned about them is that they're curious individuals. You know, they are looking around for answers to their questions that they have. They're looking for more information about things. They they want to be able to get you know reliable content too. Like we're very well aware of what what is out there that's that's false and untrue, and what's posted that's um, you know irresponsible. And so they are looking for places that they trust and feel connected with. Um, and the, I'm not same token, they're looking to be seen, you know, they want an authentic experience. They, but the authenticity goes both ways too. They want Mm. authenticity in seeing themselves in the content, but they also don't want you to be selling yourself to them in a way that they, you think that they want it. So, you know, an example that I give on that is I've seen a lot of brands, you know, years ago, try to do millennial speak. And it ends up being kind of embarrassing to the audience because it's like, we know you're a brand that's been around for a hundred years or 50 years, whatever you're controlled by people that are much older than us. And, and you, you're faking it and we can see through that. And so there is a piece of it. That's just like, 
talk to millennials the way that you would normally talk to them and they would respect that authenticity. Um, so I think that's a big one. And I think like more on a whole too, I know that millennials get such a bad rap for, you know, being lazy and being entitled and all those things. And I, you know, I, I believe the opposite is true. Um, you know, the, uh, bustle was built by millennials and, and that brand could not exist without so much hard work that went into it. And so this idea that, you know, millennials are lazy is something that, um, you know, I have never seen professionally at the very least. So, uh, so yeah, I've learned quite a bit about them throughout the years, but those are the kind of the big bullet points that I always come back with is just knowing that they are not what the reputation is about them. Um, but they also just really, you know, value and experience that speaks to them. Yeah. The authenticity part is really an interesting one because I, I think it actually extends beyond just they'll sniff out the fact that you're not authentic, but not only will they identify it, they'll call you out on it, which I think quite honestly is actually something that really has reshaped businesses because it's it's for for a long time there are many people who can look at something and say mm, that doesn't feel completely right or that's not completely authentic but to take it to the next step to call you on it that's a whole other story and i think that's actually um, in my opinion, it, it's actually one of the, the incredible values that that generation brings. It is keeping people to their word and making sure that that authenticity is exactly what it was intended to be, right? And not just spoken words. Absolutely. I mean, millennials and Gen Z both are very good at giving feedback and they will give feedback. So it's always yeah. good to listen to that feedback and, and respect it too, Um but I also think the other thing is, is, is when you're a brand trying to reach out to millennials, you don't also want to forget your existing customer base too. You know, right. there is something that also can be alienating when suddenly you change everything that you do to try to speak to a demographic that maybe wasn't even that, you know, it doesn't match your current demographic and suddenly you're not pleasing anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so he, here's an interesting one. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think that, you know, we have to stay focused, but the reality is millennials, and, and I guess soon to be Gen Zs as well, um, as they continue to take over the workforce, they're becoming the decision makers in their roles. So so how can, can B2B companies learn from the success of media and B2C companies in the approach and, and, and actually really resonating with this audience? In terms of like in a workplace culture or just overall in resonating? Oh, just overall, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like media, you, you know, we're creating new content every day. It's, it's, it's yeah. content, content, content all the time. And I think that opportunity does exist for other brands as well. The drawback is, is that content can get expensive. So you kind of have to pick and choose what you do, but at the same time, you know, people do want to feel something for the brands that they are attached to. So, you know, they're more likely to uh, purchase from a company that is doing good for the world is, is giving back to charity that has stands up for their same ideas. So like, I think of something like, you know, Nike as a great example of a brand that has just kept up with transformations. So, you know, they have been at the forefront of, of being progressive as, as a, as a company and it's worked for them and it's, it comes off as authentic and it makes people feel very aligned to them and their message. So I think that that goes a long way. So what kind of, you know, I use content loosely, you know, content marketing, you know, whatever you could put out in the world that um, can showcase what your brand is and how it feels and how it thinks and gives people a better look into who you are as a company and not just what you produce. Yeah, I think Nike's a really interesting example because they are that company who has always been out there. Mm-hmm. They have they've taken on some of the more 
difficult conversations and met them head on. And, and I think that's actually why they've been so successful is because they didn't just decide today that this was a, a hot social topic that existed and they were going to insert themselves in that discussion. It's been a part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I think it's one piece of that brand that I think many people admire, especially from a marketing perspective. I think people who are in the marketing space actually really, um, really have a respect for that because it, it, it is well thought um, and it is very authentic. It, it's not it's not anything other than that. So yeah. I, and I they don't they're, they don't really sit back and wait either. And I think a lot of right. companies sometimes will do the thing of like, well, let's see what everybody else does. Right. And then we can yeah. jump on whatever bandwagon is the most popular. And instead, they yeah. drew a line in the sand. And that's that's what makes them come out on top. Yeah. You, you know, when I was um, when we had have had conversations about the dip, um, one of the things that sort of comes up is this concept of. Uh, niche fandoms. Um, and I think at some point, you know, you had mentioned that they're being created every day, especially now that sort of everyone is at home and online. Can you do, can you, you know, I guess a couple things, help people understand that terminology, right? But then, you know, how have you learned to identify these niche fandoms and then, you know, learned and, you know, to determine what they want, don't want, and how do you do that successfully? Yeah. So basically what's happening is that, you know, you, you see this, this thing changing, at least in entertainment. And then this happens outside of entertainment too. There are niche fandoms that kind of exist everywhere and very, you know, odd random things here and there, but in entertainment, using that as an example, um, you know, we used to have an experience where everybody was watching generally the same media. Everyone was, have had network TV, um, a, a, a bunch of, you know, maybe like a few movies a month that were getting marketed to them. And, um, you know, in addition to that, the, you know, primary magazines that were showcasing certain celebrities, right? So you kind of all had access to the same sort of information and everybody was kind of developing their fandom that way. And so everything was pretty big. There were, there were, there were not a lot of niche fandoms. Instead, there were, you know, a few things that people latched onto because it was what was there. But now we see with things like Netflix, but even before that, just my God, the internet and the, all the different holes that you can go down. But, you know, taking Netflix as an example, you, you are getting an algorithm that's created just for you. And so what I'm getting on my front page is probably different than when you're getting that was different when my mom is getting, you know, and everybody else. So what that means is that we're getting invested into things kind of in a siloed way. And that's just creating a bunch of love for these things that even my best friend might not know of. And so that, that presents an opportunity to be able to create a product product where those people can come in, have conversations, read content, you know, talk about these, these shows that they do care about that nobody else in their life, uh, does because they don't get served it in the same way that maybe somebody (laughs) in in Georgia does that that wants to talk about it. Um, so that's, that's what we're seeing happen. And in terms of like how you identify those people, you know, it is something that's tough because there are so many out there, like you can have a limitless amount. So, um, you know, the way that we've kind of gone into things is by being able to look at some places that these fandoms are able to sort of hang already like who is on Facebook groups like who's over indexing on Facebook groups compared to coverage that you see about them so um, that was sort of our first pass of going through and just comparing like who is getting undercovered 
and has these huge giant fan bases and is not being served. And so we found that, for example, in a fandom that existed um, with Outlander, which is a Star series. So it's not really on the forefront of many people's minds, but the people that are super passionate about it are super passionate about it. Passionate so we've been able to pick that. up a lot of um, fans in that world and, and give them content that they really do care about. Um, and over time you realize what they do care about, you know, it kind of takes a lot of trial and error to see like what they like and what they don't like. Um, but you also have to mix that with what you want to be serving in a, in a bigger picture. So you can't be so siloed into each niche fandom. You have to kind of be yourself, but also understanding kind of what their interest is and how you can mesh that with what you need and want to, to create. Yeah, that's actually, it, it's it's kind of interesting because you're right. I mean, you, you have a lot of people in your life that don't all have the same interests. So it's actually nice to connect with that group that that has similar, you know, thoughts or or passion, right, about something that they've seen or are watching or whatever the, that, that case may be. I guess one of the things that's, that's interesting to me, I, I'd be curious to your perspective is sort of, we've all had this shift to sort of the remote work environment, right? So how has this, if any, changed the approach in the way that we target millennials? So I, I think most of that conversation is happening in like workplace environments, you know, like how do we change ourselves as a company and, you know, is everything going to be remote in the future? Um, in terms of how to, how to reach them, you know, I think what it does honestly mean is that you have more people that are probably more attached to the platforms that they visit every day during the day. So, you know, without having your boss overlooking you overlooking. or without having your team look at you. I mean, if you are the boss, <laughs> you're able to sort of kind of like scroll through Instagram on the side, look through Twitter and another window. So you have that freedom to sort of look around on things more. So I think that you probably have people becoming more of hobbyists during the time this time because they have more time to look around on things. Um, but that's what I would say the biggest change is, is just people are consuming more because they have the opportunity to. Yeah, that, make, that makes perfect sense. So, so while we have you, let, let me ask you. Let me let me ask you to sort of switch gears here a little bit. Um, where do you see media and tech industries heading in the coming years? Interesting, because I think every few years it changes, and so it's really hard to put a um, a POV on it because you know media goes through all of these different iterations. So we had like what media was like in 2007 when I graduated college is totally different than when it was in 2013, which is totally different than when it was in, you know, 2019 when we decided to leave or whatever, which is going to be different when we're in, in five years. And so there's a piece to me that I kind of always like to say, like, I don't know what it's going to look like. And I prefer it that way because then you're able to sort of like roll with the tides a little bit more, which is so important than versus just being like totally complacent. And then, you know, sticking to like, this is what it's going to be in five years. This is what it's going to look like. And I'm going to stick to that messaging and I'm not going to deviate. And that kind of, you know, puts you in a bad position, but I will say in a whole, you know, kind of the things I was touching on before, like of, of just infusing more of a community aspect to things into media. I think that that's going to become so much more important. Like we see it with something like, this is a, a different example, but look at Peloton, right? Peloton, Peloton is more or less a content company. It's an equipment company, but it's a content company too. But it's also a huge community company. The community that they've created is so strong and so passionate. And so they've been able to mix a utility with a uh, content business with a community. And it's created this amazing thing that everybody wants to be a part of if you can buy into it. And luckily it costs enough money that they're going to make a lot of money off of that desire to buy into it. So, you know, I think that we kind of can see media going in a similar direction of, you know, we had previously like all the bustle brands, we don't have any 
commenting community. We got nothing on it. It's just a flat page. So when you land on a bustle page, you're just there and you leave. And that was what we intentionally did back then because it felt like everyone was just talking on social media anyway. So why, why even build that into our product? But now with social media becoming super toxic and way, way too widespread, there's going to be desire to find a home where you can talk to people that are like you, that feel similarly to you. Um, and media businesses can really take that opportunity. So I think we're just going to see a lot more of that as we continue to grow um, and see inspiration in people outside of just our main publishers that we know and love and reference every day. The last question I have for you is, uh, on that vein, do you think, and and what would you say to, to those who, who have the opinion that by having people who are constantly trying to surround themselves with people who just think like them um, limits their abilities to be able to see a different perspective or expand their view. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I'm doing this in entertainment and not politics. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say that that is something that really does worry me. And if I was creating a political product, I don't think that that would be something, this would be something that I would be doing. Um, I do fear for that. I I fear for these kind of, these these holes that people are going down and, and, um, you know, it can be so, so, so dangerous. So, you know, there is definitely a slippery slope. Um, and I think that the news business has not has not figured this out yet, but it also is a platform problem too. The platforms have not figured this out yet. And so that's going to be a big thing that is a big challenge that comes all of our way way in in the 10 years that follow. Hopefully, hopefully we figure it out in the next 10 years. I'm not convinced that we even will, but, um, but I'm hoping it does. But, um, so I think that there is like a sense of, nicheness that is healthy when it comes to hobbies and when it comes to passions. But when that starts to get into things that involve actual like facts and people's lives Mm. and civil rights and other things, then we get into a pretty bad territory. So moderation is definitely something on the top of our minds. And I think it's something that should be on the top of every media brand's minds. But, um, but yeah, you know, I'm not going to lie. That's something that scares me too. But again, that's why I chose entertainment. (laughs) Yeah, Kate, I mean, great. I, I, I love this conversation. I love speaking with you. You have such great insight. Um, I continue to wish you nothing but the best with the dip. And, and thank you so much for being a part of this discussion. Thanks, Brian. It was so great to chat. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us by growing our visitors um, and our feeds on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Rowley, and that's another episode of The Big Rethink.